Hello, and welcome back to the Formal Review. Today, we'll be having a very special episode. Now sit back, maybe grab a drink, and let's talk about this movie. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Formal Review. This is Season 3, Episode 38, and I thank you all for tuning in once again. Now, like the last episode, this episode's gonna be slightly different because we will be looking at the Nolan Batman movies. Now, obviously, these movies are not new films, and this is gonna be continuing my somewhat series of looking at older movies, but looking at them in 4K. And if you haven't been following me, I've been slowly upgrading a lot of my movies to 4K, and I was doing this mostly in anticipation of getting my Xbox Series X, which I got at the beginning of November. So as with the last episode, we're obviously at a point where movies are unlikely to come out in theaters in the near future, at least in the United States, unless you're in an area that doesn't have restrictions. But in my area, we have these restrictions and movie theaters are closed. So I'm not able to see new movies. Now, one could say, go watch a movie on Netflix. But frankly, there are a lot of those types of podcasts as it is. So I decided when I rewatch a film in 4K, I would talk about it. This is because these are essentially new experiences for me because frankly, a lot of 4K movies are meant to be in that way or meant to be at 2K and then they're upscaled, otherwise known as fake 4K. But again, either one is a new experience for me when it comes to visuals, when it comes to potentially a different audio track. And now that I'm able to experience that, I wanted to share that experience with everyone. So I got a lot of movies on Black Friday sales at about $7 a movie. All things considered, selling movies, and also selling the digital copies of the movies. So, and I'll be going into my haul of all of the movies I was able to get on Black Friday sales. But with these specific films, I was so excited to get them on 4K that I really couldn't wa- wait to watch and then talk about them because as I'm sure a lot of people out there know, they are some of Nolan's most liked films. I wanted to give my thoughts on them specifically and the experience that I had with them in 4K. So stay tuned. And here we go. Now, before I get into anything on these movies, I know I talk about this at the end, but the data shows that most people skip over that part. (laughs) So I do want to reiterate the importance of leaving reviews on your favorite podcast service because those reviews really help me grow and improve. A lot of you have talked to me offline, but I do really appreciate the reviews that already are out there. If everyone could just continue doing that or letting me know any way that you think that I could grow and make this more entertaining, feel free. And I'll look at them and I'll grow as such. I also want to say, as with all episodes, there is a slight spoiler warning for those who haven't seen the films. And I will do my best not to ruin the movie for you. As always, I do suggest that if you haven't seen the movies and you care about spoilers, definitely go watch the films, then come back and hear what I have to say about them. But if you don't care about that, keep listening. So as I mentioned in the last episode, the main reason why I got the Series X was that it can play 4K Ultra HD discs with Dolby Atmos and or TTSX. And then I can also have one system for all activity, gaming, and movie watching. So even with the slight issues that I talked about with the HDMI 2.1 chip in my receiver, I can still say that I'm extremely impressed with this system as obviously I can get everything that I wanted from it. Anyway, so firstly, I also wanted to talk about my fandom of the Batman character. And if you haven't been listening to any of the other episodes where I talked about Batman, I've been a huge fan ever since I was a kid. I was and I'm still to this day a big fan 
fan of the original animated series. This is obviously because it's one of the best animated television series of all time. It ran from September 5th, 1992 to September 15, 1995. It has thematic complexity, film, noir aesthetics, a darker tone than a lot of animated shows, artistic presentation, and a modernization of Batman's fighting origins that adds in also a Japanese ninja aspect. And it reimagined characters such as Two-Face and Mr. Freeze, and then created characters that are fan favorites now, such as Harley Quinn. Without this TV show, there would not be a Margot Robbie portrayal. This series led to many spin-offs such as Justice League, Superman, Batman Beyond, and Static Shock. This was a huge part of my childhood. I had many action figures from the show that unfortunately I've lost along the way. Along with one of my favorite toys as a kid was the animated series Batmobile. And to this day, I still get hyped when I hear the car starting and the theme song crescendo. This series brought out famous voice actors of Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill. Honestly, I knew Mark Hamill as the Joker before I knew him as Luke Skywalker. There's your two cents now. What are you going to do to me? You really should loosen up, dealer. Have a laugh now and then. <laughs> I was and am a huge fan of everything that has to do with the show. If I missed an episode, my grandmother would take the shows for me to watch later. Funny story. This was honestly because my mother hustled me. I, I really wanted this Superboy action figure with this super bike. And she told me that I could only have it if I did not watch television during the week. Me being a dumb kid, of course I agreed to this. I did not watch any television aside from the weekends, though movies were a different story. And I found out years later that she was surprised that I listened to this. Anyway, I say all this to demonstrate how how much I am into the Batman character. So when I say that none of the live action films are the best representation of the character, you understand why. I believe that the 1992 Mask of the Phantasm is the best representation of the Batman character ever put on a theater screen. Yes, this movie was released in theaters. Yes, it is better than The Dark Knight and the 1989 Batman film. However, before anyone gets too upset at me, this is not to say this film is is a better made film than those films that I just mentioned. And I'll go into this more cohesively in a little bit, but basically what I'm trying to say is Nolan's version of the character on screen are some of the best made films when dealing with the character. I mean, these films are extremely well off with their Rotten Tomato scores of 84%, 94%, 87% respectively, but as Batman films, they struggle. Yes, obviously Batman is in them and he is the main character. However, there is a difference between a film that has Batman in it and an accurate Batman film. You can say that these films are Nolan's interpretation of the character, which is fine, but he is missing certain key characteristics. And even the comics had many iterations of the character. However, they have kept specific characteristics in each iteration, whereas the films have had issues keeping these same characteristics. These qualities include his intelligence slash his detective work and his humanity slash the duality between the Batman 
Batman and Bruce persona. And if these qualities are not there, then it is a partial representation of the character. Now, a full analysis on these two qualities could be an episode by itself, so I'm gonna try to keep this short. So if one Googles world's greatest detective, Batman comes up and is comparable to Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot. The latter two people are just the best detectives in classic English literature, and for Batman to be comparable to them shows his level of intelligence. This means he can not only use technology, but he also manipulates them to use them for his advantage. And Mike Conroy in 2004 said that he is the world's greatest crime solver. And even in a Superman story arc, Superman says that Batman has one of the most brilliant minds on the planet. A detective is defined as a person whose occupation is to investigate and solve crimes. A crime is defined as an action or a mission that constitutes an offense that may be prosecuted by the state and is punishable by law. In a lot of the live action films, yes, he stops antagonists of the films, but he doesn't solve anything. Now, this is an issue of all the live action movies, but I'm going to be concentrating mostly on the Nolan films specifically. So in Batman Begins, the main crime happening is the drugging of Gotham's water supply. So in this movie, there are two very small detective moments where Batman interrogates Gordon and then when he interrogates Flass. Where were the other drugs going? I never knew. I swear to God. Swear to me. They, they went to some guy for a couple of days before they went to the dealer. Why? There was something, something else in the drugs. Something hidden. What? I never went to the drop-off point. It was in the Narrows. Cops only go there when they're in force. Do I look like a cop? However, Flash does not tell him where in the Narrows. In the next scene, Batman goes to a specific house. Why? Because it's the biggest coincidence that it's the one that Scarecrow uses. Then, later in the film, he hears over the phone that Rachel is going to Arkham. Rachel Doss, who authorized that? Get Crane down there right now. Do not take no for an answer. Call Dr. Lehman and tell him we'll need our own assessment on the judge's desk by morning. What's wrong? It's Falcone. Dr. Crane moved him to Arkham Asylum on suicide watch. You've gone to Arkham now. It's in the Narrows, Rachel. You enjoy your party, Bruce. Some of us have work to do. One could say that it's because he hears Dr. Crane when he interacts with him in this specific house, and that's the reason he goes. However, in that scene, there is no indication that Crane and Batman interact. Go back and rewatch this scene. He doesn't even see Crane's face, and no one says his name. In this specific scene, there's no way that Batman could even see Crane as he faces the window almost most the entire time. And he doesn't turn around until Batman is in the bathroom beating up another henchman. And then he doesn't even interact with Crane without Crane's mask on. As such, after Rachel is taken, he sees Crane take off the Scarecrow masks. And then you can obviously make the deduction that Crane is Scarecrow. However, he didn't go to Arkham to stop Crane from doing something. He went there to follow Rachel, not to figure out who Scarecrow was or even to figure out the drug situation. It just so happened that they were connected. He doesn't even make the connection that Raish is responsible for the drug, even though he's felt the gas before, until Raish is right in front of his face. Crane was working for you. His toxin is derived from the organic compound found in our blue flowers. He was able to weaponize it. So Batman doesn't even really figure out what the drug is. He just is told what the drug is by Raish. He doesn't figure this out. 
then the film obviously then proceeds to be about stopping him and giving people the handle, blah, 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 blah. Don't get me wrong. Love this movie. And I'll go into that in a little bit. So The Dark Knight is arguably the best made Batman movie. However, he's not really a detective in this movie either. It's more of a spy. He travels the world to stop the Joker's agenda of chaos. And there's only honestly one real detective moment in this movie when he does the bullet analysis to find the fingerprint. But even this was a ploy by the Joker. The Joker is essentially too smart for him. And thus really, he's not the world's greatest detective. There is one scene that one could say that he's interrogating a character when he does an intimidation act of hanging Maroney to talk to him. I want the Joker. From one professional to another. If you're trying to scare somebody, pick up that spot. In this height, Paul wouldn't kill me. I'm counting on it. Cool. Where is he? I don't know where he is. He found us. He must have friends. Friends? Let this guy. Someone knows where he is. Nobody's gonna tell you nothing. That wise tear act, you got rules. The Joker, he's got no rules. Nobody's gonna cross him for you. You want this guy, you got one way. But you already know what that is. Just take off that mask, let him come find you. <laughs> you gonna let a couple more people get killed while you make up your mind. He breaks his leg, sure, but he doesn't get anything out of him. Even the radar device he uses at the end of the film only helps him to find out where the Joker is, but it doesn't stop the bombing. The people on the boats are the ones that stop the bombing. We really should stop this fighting. Otherwise, we'll miss the fireworks. And here we go. trying to prove that deep down everyone's as ugly as you you're alone you can't rely on anyone these days you gotta do everything yourself don't we that's okay i came prepared it's a funny world we live in city honestly dumb luck that the bombing doesn't happen Really, Batman doesn't honestly get anything out of him, except where to find Harvey, but the Joker just tells him this. You didn't think I'd risk losing the battle for Gotham's soul in a fistfight with you. You need an ace in the hole. Mine's Harvey. What did you do? I took Gotham's white knight, and I brought him down to our level. See, madness, as you know, is like gravity. All it takes is a little push. <laughs> And moving on to The Dark Knight Rises, which has even less detective work than The Dark Knight, done by the Cape Crusader himself. Blake is potentially the best detective in this movie because he's able to figure out Batman's secret identity from a look. I figured it out too late. You gotta learn to hide the anger. It's like putting on a mask. Right when I saw you, I knew who you really were. I'd seen that look on your face before. It's the same one I taught myself. I don't know why you took the fall for Dent's murder. I'm still a believer in the Batman. Batman does track down his mother's necklace when Selina Kyle steals it, but it has little to do with the Bane's plan aside from giving him the avenue to find Bane, which was fairly coincidental. On top of that, Batman knows very little about Bane, and like the last two films, he has everything explained to him instead of him figuring it out. But this time by Alfred instead of the actual villains, so I guess that makes it better. You should hear the rumors surrounding Bane. I'm all ears. There is a prison in a more ancient part of the world, a pit where men are thrown to suffer and die. But sometimes 
A man rises from the darkness. Sometimes the pit sends something back. Bane. Born and raised in hell on earth. No one knows why or how he escaped. But they do know that once he did, he was trained by Razel Gore. And then he was excommunicated. And any man who is too extreme for Razel Gore not to be tried. So long story short, there really isn't any detective work with Bane or Talia. So my main point here in looking at this detective work is that the Mask of the Phantasm has Batman and the audience figuring out who the Phantasm is the entire movie. That is the main goal of it, trying to figure out who the phantasm is and stop them. You see the difference there? So the second most important quality of the character is his duality. And this is perhaps one of the most important differences between Batman and the other superheroes in the DC universe is because his secret identity is Bruce Wayne and not the other way around. But I do think that there's a more deeper duality than that. That honestly deals with similar concepts to Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I got into these ideas previously when I talked into on my Halloween episode on American Psycho. And that's season three, episode 29, if you want to hear that in full detail. But simply put, there are two approaches to psychology. One is Freudian and the other is Jungian. The former looks at the mind as a healthy entity and anything new aside from that is essentially a disease. And his main ideas of the id, the ego, and superego is that the id is the dark, inaccessible part of our personality that's called chaos. The ego essentially separates what is real. The superego is what is normally looked at as a person's subconscious. Jungian simply says, that the mind has many different portions and is coherent by nature. And this side basically says that a healthy person wears many masks and none of them are fake. So essentially showing the complexity of the human psyche itself. The duality quality is important because Batman at the end of the day is human. And that also in turn is a bit problematic in the live action versions of the character as he is shown to be almost indestructible. The film shows injuries and bruises, but they don't really slow him down aside from putting on a shirt in pain. Did you get mauled by a tiger? It was a dog. Huh? It was a big dog. Know your limits, Master Wayne. Batman has no limits. Well, you do, sir. Well, can't afford to know him. The only time that we really see him struggle is with the knee brace, but that is now explained for with reasons. And then with him basically retraining in the prison, but we have no indication of the time aspect of how long he was there. And I'll get onto that in a little bit, but this does allow for good action sequences, but it takes away a key humanistic point. And arguably that would then remove the need for duality because he's not really human anyway. However, that would essentially make him less of a Batman character. This duality is barely touched on in the Nolan films, but more in a romantic way. Rachel was the only thing allowing him to hope that Gotham wouldn't need a Batman one day and that she would always wait for him. I think that one of the more stronger portrayals of a Batman psychiatric aspect is in Darwin's cook, Batman Ego, and other tales comic book, which is also supposed to be the inspiration for the 2021 Matt Reeves' The Batman. However, as I film has not come out yet the rest of the live action ones do not have this and this again where the mask of the phantasm shines because it does show that he is human and it is done in a romantic way as well but you do see the physical abuse that he gets in you see him bleed you see him slow down because of his injuries and as i stated at the beginning i'm not trying to state that the nolan films are worse films than the mask of the phantasm rather i'm only trying to illustrate that if one story of a character has 80 percent or less of a character there and another has a hundred percent of the character there which has more of the character 
obviously 100% is more than 80%. I have really nothing against two of the films, but more on that in a little bit. So this trilogy wrapped up in 2012 and they have been out on Blu-ray for a while. However, back in 2017, it was announced that no one was going to personally oversee a 4K mastering of the entire trilogy. Nolan has always been proud of his films and he wanted to make sure that his movies looked as good as possible on home video. He finished all of them on 35 millimeter, which have at least a 6K resolution and then in the IMAX sequences have upwards of 18K. And he wanted to give his fans an experience that's much closer to what the original film prints were like. And as I've stated on prior episodes, my move up to 4K has only been fairly recent, but this trilogy was always at the top of my list upgrade too. The problem as with any purchase is the cost of the upgrade. These films have been noted to be really, really good and the studio knows it. And they've been fairly consistent with their prices for this throughout the years, upwards of $60 for the entire trilogy. And because they really only have this visual upgrade, I didn't want to pay that especially when I know for a fact that they go for cheaper this time of year. I knew I would be able to get them for a price that I was more comfortable paying and I wasn't wrong. On top of that, $60 isn't worth only a visual upgrade as Nolan's film have the DTS HD master audio format, which is an older format. Functional, but old. For those tuning in for the first time, this format is a lossless multi-channel audio codec that can carry up to 7.1 surround sound. For me, I love Dolby Atmos and DTSX, and if they had those upgrades, I probably wouldn't have been able to wait. From what I read to why no one doesn't upgrade to Dolby Atmos is because it's not compatible with film projection, so he doesn't want to give any digital home presentations of his movies any advantages over his films shown in the theaters. While I get this and understand his passion for going to the theaters, especially during the pandemic and the businesses not doing so well, I don't agree with him here as I do think it holds back advancing the home watching experience. The problem for me is that most theaters do not even have the audio capacity to do this anyway, unless you're going to a true IMAX theater or Dolby Cinema or something specific that you're willing to pay extra for. 7.1 is nice, especially because this is basically Atmos for me because I have a 5.2.3 system or a 5.2.2 system, depending on who you ask, because I have uh, five speakers, two Atmos speakers and three subwoofers, but some would say I'm only working two of them. But anyway, so in other words, two of my speakers are overhead. So that's 7.1 works for that. However, I know some people out there have more than that amount of speakers for their Atmos setup. And frankly, having only eight audio channels can inhibit that a little bit. I've also read film in general only carries up to six channels of audio. So it may actually not even be up to him as the audio from a 35 millimeter is already at the max of the film's capability. However, one could make the argument that he could move to digital, but I don't think he should do that either because I really do like his work ethic that he puts in and the emphasis that he makes on the filmmaking process rather than what is easy and cheap. His work most definitely pays off even if people do not like his films such as the most recent one, Tenet. Though I love that movie and go check out season 3 episode 25 to hear why I think it's in the top of his filmography, I'm not going to talk about too much about it here because we are here to talk about his Batman trilogy. So let's get back in our time machine and go back to where all of this began 2005. I believe the most likely outcome will be our collective demise. Not if we strictly follow the rules of time travel. No talking to our past selves, no betting on sporting events. Just let's sit back, relax, grab your drinks, and let's discuss these movies. So 
Batman Begins is a 2005 superhero film directed and written by Nolan along with David S. Goyer. It stars Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Liam Neeson, Katie Holmes, Gary Oldman, Cillian Murphy, Tom Wilkinson, Rutger Hauer, Kate Watanabe, and Morgan Freeman. So after 1995's Batman Forever and 1997's Batman and Robin were poorly and accurately received, the Batman films went into development hell. Then in 2003, Nolan and Goyer began work on Batman Begins. They used inspiration from The Man Who Falls, Batman Year One, and Batman The Long Halloween for this movie. It was then released on June 15, 2005 and grossed over $373 million worldwide. As I stated already, it is recommended by 84% of critics with a consensus being brooding and dark, but also exciting and smart. Batman Begins is a film that understands the essence of one of the most definitive superheroes. It also has a 94% user raising after over 1 million user reviews. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Cinematography and has often been cited as one of the most influential films of the 2000s. When Nolan and Goyer first started out, they wanted a darker, more realistic tone compared to the prior films that also looked more into the Bruce and Batman characters. And honestly, for the most part, they did succeed. And they added another important character, Gotham City itself. At the beginning of the film, Gotham is in an economic depression and corruption is everywhere. People live in fear and are at the mercy of the Gotham's criminals. We learn that no one outside of the murdered Thomas and Martha Wayne has been powerful enough to really give back to this city to stand up for what's right and kind of act as this champion for the working class. Their son, Bruce, then leaves Gotham to try to understand the criminals that killed his parents and run his city. He comes upon Henry Ducard, played by Liam Neeson, who shows him a better way to fight evil on its own terms thanks to Rachel Ghoul's teaching with the League of Shadows. You have become truly lost. One path and Raz al Ghul offer. The path of a man who shares his hatred of evil and wishes to serve true justice. The path of the League of Shadows. If you make yourself more than just a man, if you devote yourself to an ideal, and if they can't stop you, then you become something else entirely. After defying the League of Shadows, Bruce returns to Gotham to protect the good people of his city and to strike fear into the hearts of those who would prey upon the weak. Then Batman stops Ra's al Ghul from returning to destroy a city through the use of Dr. Crane's fear toxin. So the film deconstructs Bruce Wayne while also building up the classic Batman origin story. And I will admit that no one does treat the character well with respect and care. It may not be the most accurate representation of the character, but it wasn't due to stupidity. Rather, it was more due to the fact that he kind of wanted to tell his own story for the character. And on top of that, Christian Bale is quite good here as he's able to express both the intensity and the rage that lies underneath Bruce's calm face. Michael Caine and Morgan Frieden also have an extend gravitas in the film as Alfred and Lucius Fox respectively. And Oldman as Jim Gordon here shows how good of an actor he is. He isn't over the top as he's been in other roles 
roles. And he's simply, he's just a genuine good guy. The role to me has been almost as iconic as his role as Sirius Black in the Harry Potter series. And this is not to say that he's had no better roles than these two performances. In fact, he's definitely had better roles than, than these two. But these are two of my favorites because they're characters that I grew up around. Neeson as Rachel Ghoul slash Ducard is also very memorable as well. I think no one really does capture what a film noir is via its tone and production design. And furthermore, I would say that this film is a better Batman film than the sequels, but more on that in a little bit. I think the stunt work here is great. The action sequences are pretty awesome. And the Tumblr was interestingly shot with real vehicles at full scale and genuinely high speeds, which gives this authenticity to this movie that similar scenes in other superhero movies have really lacked. As I mentioned already, this film was shot on 35 millimeter film, but it was also finished on film with the digital effects being produced at 2K resolution. This film was then scanned in 4K, which then gives the HDR, and then it is presented at a 2.39 to 1 theatrical aspect ratio. So in this scan, there was definitely an increase in detail and texture over the previous Blu-ray edition. From what I read, Nolan also replied some noise reduction to reduce facial wrinkles, and because this version comes from a scan and not the film itself, there is a low film grain. And this comes off as a pro and con to the Blu-ray as the details aren't as crisp as one may like, but it does reduce the grain if you care about that sort of thing. I think that contract is hella good and the film benefits extremely well from the HDR. Certain colors pop more than they did before and I love watching the film again. In regard to the audio, it gives some really clear dialogue in the front speakers and a good bass to go with Hans Zimmer's brilliant score. The effects do pan very smoothly from speaker to speaker and the Atmos speakers do sound great even if not true Atmos. Any action sequences involving the tumbler rattled my walls and like I said, Zimmer's score is amazing sounding. This rewatch was brilliant and again, I think it is Nolan's best Batman film. Now when I say best Batman film, I mean it as I feel the Dark Knight is more of a Joker movie than a Batman movie. Back in 2008 when this film was released, it was the best Hollywood blockbuster that year. It has done a lot for the superhero comic book film genre and frankly no matter how many times I rewatch it, it never gets old. Along with a few other films, it is still one of the finest examples of this genre given to date. This film is considered one of the best films of the 2000 to 2009 decade and one of the best superhero films of all time. It has received praise for screenplay, visual effects, musical score, themes, performances, particularly by Heath Ledger, cinematography, action sequences, and direction. The film on Rotten Tomatoes has a 94% rating and the critic consensus states, and I quote, dark, complex, and unforgettable, The Dark Knight succeeds not just as an entertaining comic book film, but as a richly thrilling crime saga. It also has a 94% audience score after about 1.8 million user ratings. With over $1 billion in revenue worldwide, it became the fourth high grossest film at the time and the highest grossing film of 2008. It also received eight nominations and it won the award for best sound editing and Alleja was awarded best supporting actor posthumously. No one got inspiration for this movie from the Joker's comic debut, 1940, the 1988, the graphic novel, Killing Joke, and the 1996 series, Long Halloween, which also retold Harvey Dent's origin. I will say though it does have a lot of similarities to Michael Mann's Heat, which is the main issue that I have with the movie. It's not truly original, whereas I feel Batman Begins is more original. There are also some logic issues with the film, such as when Batman arrives at the party and no one notices him until 
Tilly says. And shout out to my boy Tommy for pointing this out to me because frankly, he introduced this bit to me, though I think it bothers him more than it bothers me. But I can't say that it isn't an issue. And also another thing that Tommy introduced me to that does kind of bother me a little bit, but I'm more bothered by the physics aspect of this. So later on, Batman jumps out the window to save Rachel. He falls and just breaks the car. No injury whatsoever from that. But Tommy's issue with it is that physics aside, he could go grab the Joker afterwards. Joker has to go for many floors to leave. His point is that Batman could have saved her, then gone back and got the Joker. This is something that doesn't bother me as much again but it is an issue with the writing as it's not really explained how the Joker gets away or anything. Now, having said all that, the film is still simply a great piece of filmmaking. It has everything that one would want from a comic book film. Fantastic action while also dissecting a character further than pretty much any prior live action did before. No one does try to look at the concepts of good versus evil and that fine line that separates the two. He does push the story to dark places as a Batman film should. The acting again is great with honestly the weakest part being Bale. And that's not to say he's bad. It's just that everyone else is so good. The direction by Nolan is fantastic along again with his production design. Then on top of all that, yeah, obviously Heath Ledger's Joker is iconic. He doesn't have to be your favorite portrayal, but he took it to a whole nother level that really wasn't even done again until Joaquin Phoenix's performance of the character and frankly it is up there with Darth Vader and Nurse Ratched when it comes to cinematic villains. One thing that this film does do well is really show how genius the Joker is. He constantly outsmarts Batman and the police. For example, one thing that the film starts off with is with the Joker's men wearing clown masks that are most likely found on the dead men at the end of the scene. Then when he tries to kill the mayor, he captures cops to steal their uniforms. So when we get to the climactic scene, he has his hostages in clown masks and his thugs are dressed up as citizens. The audience and the cops naturally will judge which are the villains and which are the hostages, even though nothing is as they seem. You had plans and uh, look where that got you. I just did what I do best. I took your little plan and I turned it on itself. The Joker knows that some people are predictable and he takes advantage of this. This is a detail that is so small that really shows how well executed the movie is. One of my favorite things to this day is how no one pays attention to detail. Another example of this is when Batman is in Hong Kong and fires the bombs on Lao's building. The time left before the explosion happens is seen in real time from the audience. And to this day, that is something that I absolutely absolutely love the time because it's pretty perfect. Similar to Batman Begins, it was filmed on 35mm, but also it has 30 minutes of 65mm using IMAX cameras. It also was finished on film with their effects rendered in 2K and 5.6K respectively for the IMAX sequences. For the 4K release, he again followed the same process and gave a ratio presentation that shifts back and forth from a 2.39 to 1 to 1.78 to 1 ratio 
show for the IMAX sequences. As with Batman Begins, the grain is lessened because of the scan, but this was done more so to match the clarity of the IMAX footage, which gives obviously a tremendous amount of detail. Similar to Batman Begins, the footage of the cities allows them to be characters alongside the humans in this film. I think the HDR once again is great, but it's not overdone and it looks exactly how no one wants it to. And I think that this is honestly noticeably better in this version over the Blu-ray version. Again, the audio mix is a 5.1 DTS HD master audio and like Batman Begins, clear audio, great bass, smooth and natural panning and fantastic atmospherics. The bass is more powerful here than in Batman Begins, but I think that's mostly because of Zimmer's scores a little bit more aggressive and established and in no way is this a problem. Everything that involved watching this film again was great. Each rewatch brings something new that I noticed. The last time I rewatched this movie, I saw a caged canary when Fox visits Lao in Hong Kong. I saw this caged canary even somewhat representing Lao eventually. It was a yellow canary and he's also wearing a yellow suit. So I thought that that was really interesting, especially when he gets put into prison and then what does he do? He sings. And this may be a little bit of a stretch of how this is kind of inspired by Maya Angelou's poem of similar name. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The cage bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but long for still, and his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the cage bird sings of freedom. Now, I know this is a little different from the obviously significance of this poem, but I personally really saw this aspect in the film, and again, maybe a stretch. Now on this watch, I noticed something else, but it was more on the filming technique that Nolan did when Harvey is interrogating one of Joker's thugs. The lighting is only shown on half of his face, foreshadowing his ultimate downfall. Another foreshadow that I noticed was the laziness of Wurtz. I knew about Ramirez before and the foreshadow that she has. Ever intending to see your wife again, Lieutenant? I thought you had to go look after your mother, Detective. Checked you back into the hospital. What I didn't realize is that at the beginning of the film, they show Wirtz, quote unquote, investigating Batman. Hey, Wirtz, the mayor says you're closing in on the Batman. The investigation is ongoing. While this is somewhat played for last, it speaks to his character. Wurtz isn't on screen very much, but we know that he obviously is very unenthusiastic about his job and he's kind of distant and cold. Wurtz is also the cop that leads Joker into Dent's fundraiser and we learn later it's essentially under the guise of being forced to bring them in at gunpoint. Through this, no one is able to make his audience feel for this character and make them think that he's a good person that even Gordon trusts. As he's shown to be a clearly good liar, he is able to even gain confidence of Harvey before abducting him and selling him to Joker's thugs. We know early on in the movie that Harvey says, Gordon, I don't like that you've got your own special unit, and I don't like that it's full of cops I investigated at Internal Affairs. If I didn't work with cops, she'd investigated while you were making your name at IA, I'd be working alone. I don't get political points for being an idealist. I have to do the best I can with what I have. So we know through this that some people in Gordon's unit aren't to be trusted. Now, it's pretty logical to say that Ramirez was most likely desperate due to her family in the hospital. Now, Wirtz is a little different because he doesn't have so much of the familial connection to why he traded over the Joker. And I think it's fairly logical to think that maybe he held some resentment towards Harvey for doing this, or perhaps he just wanted money. I mean, we are living in Gotham. There 
there are corrupt police officers as it was shown in Batman Begins. So all of this is just as likely. So another interesting thing that I noticed on this rewatch of this movie was when Joker visits Harvey in the hospital, there are brain scans of Harvey in the background. So while it is a hospital and one could say that it's only up because of that, most physicians won't leave those up when they leave a room. They leave it up to show the patient and then they usually take it down. If they do leave it up, it's for the patient or their family to look at it if they want to. But Harvey obviously hasn't gotten up to look at it and you can't really see them from a distance, at least to inspect them and look at them aside from a doctor pointing them out to you. So Harvey hasn't gotten up to look at them himself and pretty doubtful at this point that he has a family. So then why would the doctor leave this up? Maybe yeah, he rushed out when he heard an explosion, but then why didn't he come back and do something with his patient? So I think it's fairly reasonable to think that no one did this purposefully to allude to the theory that people are either left-brained or right-brained, meaning that one side of their brain is dominant. And if you're mostly analytical and methodical in your thinking, you tend to be left-brained. And if you tend to be more creative or artistic, you are thought to be right-brained. And if you look closely, which is easy to do on 4K scans, you can see that the side of the brain that Nolan shows is Harvey's left, which makes sense given his character. Seriously, this film is really, really great, even though I've seen it over 20 times, but I have honestly lost count how many times. So now we have to talk about the weakest film in the trilogy, and I kind of went into this on an episode of Backseat Directors that I did put out on the former review as well, and if you want to go back and listen to that, three other great guys, shout out to Mikey, Andre, and Rai. I think that these are great guys to definitely follow so definitely check out the Life of Films blog for Rise content, Backseat Directors podcast for Andres, and Big Screen Bike down for Mikey's. They all have really great content. I will definitely say go check their stuff out. But if you want to hear our specific conversation about this, definitely check out Season 3, Episode 19. But I'm going to cover some things here as well. When this film was released, it received positive reviews with most of the praise going toward the performances, accent sequences, screenplay, direction, musical score, and emotional death which a lot of people do say that it's a satisfying conclusion to the trilogy. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has, like I said, an 87% rating after 367 critic reviews, with the critic consensus stating that, and I quote, The Dark Knight Rises is an ambitious, thoughtful, and potent action film that concludes Christopher Nolan's franchise in spectacular fashion. And after 1.2 million audience ratings, it has a 90% Rotten Tomatoes score. The film grossed over 1 billion worldwide, and it is Nolan's highest grossing film, and in addition to film, it also became the seventh highest grossing film of all time at the time of its release, as well as the third highest grossing film in 2012. So like I said, this is definitely the weakest film in the trilogy. And before anyone gets upset, I want to still say that this is a finely made film. It just isn't up to par with the prior two films. Now, this may be due to the ultimate passing of Ledger after The Dark Knight, but I still think no one's finale is a little lazy. No one was hesitant about returning to the series for a third film, but he agreed to doing it after developing the story with his brother and Goyer that he felt would conclude the series on a fairly good note. He got some inspiration from 1993's Nightfall storyline, The Dark Knight Returns, and also No Man's Land. So eight years have passed since the events of The Dark Knight. Gotham is crime-free, Batman has disappeared for quote-unquote reasons, and, and left the responsibility of it to Police Commissioner Gordon. Bruce has closed himself off from the world to essentially sulk after the death of Rachel in the prior film and his physical and emotional state has crippled him and then a new threat arises from beneath Gotham 
Bane, played by Tom Hardy. As such, Batman must return, and he gets help from Gordon and a new young police officer named John Blake, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Bruce also then finds help from a cat burger named Selina Kyle, played by Anne Hathaway. Batman then overestimates his adversary and ends up in a prison where he must rise above his fear and face Bane once again. I will say that this film still has that grand effect that Nolan has been known for. He adds even more IMAX footage, and the story does attempt to look at the toll that fighting Gotham's criminal element has taken on both Bruce Wayne and Commissioner Gordon. And honestly, Nolan once again finds interesting ways to add more familiar characters from the Batman mythos into his big screen trilogy, obviously with Hathaway and Levitt giving very grounded and fairly believable incarnations of Catwoman and Robin, though I will say the use of Robin is pretty stupid and feels fairly fan fiction oriented. She use your full name. I like that name. Robin. So as I already discussed, one of my biggest problems with this movie is the storytelling feels lazy. Blake is apparently the best detective in this movie, as I already talked about, as he's able to figure out who Batman is based on a look. You're telling me that there's no other orphan in the world that could do this? It seems pretty easy to figure out based on that explanation. On top of that, there are many other instances where things go left unexplained in this movie, and there's little to no explanation of the atomic machine or why it was made. Wayne Enterprises seemingly made it and then changed their mind about it. Batman's retirement itself barely makes sense as it was due to the criminals being off the street. Why was Bruce gone for eight years? When Bane and Batman first meet, Bane somehow knows his true identity. Maybe he learned this from Talia al Ghul, who is his boss, who maybe learned it from Raish. Here's a problem with that. Talia and Bane were trained when she was maybe 12. Bruce and Talia are approximately the same age. Bruce then met Raish sometime after or maybe at the end of college and then kills him maybe a year later. So somewhere in this year, Raish told a young Talia who Batman is, then told her to become the Wayne Enterprises board member for a non-existent device as a backup plan in case his plan in Batman Begins didn't work. Yeah, some may call this nitpicking, but when this is kind of the big point of the movie, it has to be written a little bit better. Then additionally, how did they find out about applied sciences? Maybe Talia or Bane hacked into Wayne's computer network to find out, but this wasn't really said. Then the romance between Talia and Batman is pretty awful. And frankly, it felt really forced for no reason. Yes, there's a possibility of her being more interested in Bane and we we have been shown that Bruce is a womanizer in the past, but up to this point in the movie, people are trying to hook them up to help him get over Rachel's death. There's little to no chemistry between them. And then the last thing is the time on the bomb. So you know like how I talked about no one paying attention to detail similar to this in The Dark Knight? Yeah, that did not matter at all in this movie. They jump around and certain things are supposed to go off in a specific amount of time and then don't. I mean, 
mean, a lot of action movies do have this problem, but no one cared about this sort of detail before and why didn't he hear? Then the prison doesn't really make sense at all. Why can Talia, a child, and then Bruce, who is an adult, escape, but then none of the prisoners can? Or even Bane, who's obviously in the peak of physical condition, aside from the mask breathing, which is a whole nother thing. Also, pretty sure at the end of that, Bruce gave them a rope to escape, even though he has no idea what they did. Seems kind of problematic for a person who's trying to go against crime, letting prisoners escape. Then when he somehow gets back to Gotham, he has time to light up the bridge. And then also, how did no one on his journey see who he was? Maybe paid them off? Well, early on, he said that he's out of money, so that doesn't seem likely. And then the ending doesn't make any sense. Somehow, Batman and Bruce are gone at the same time, and surprisingly, he's in Florence, and then no one recognizes him, and he has no disguise. Okay, let me back up a little bit, and let's say that this is how he saves the Batman identity. Then why do they have a funeral for him? Because Bruce could be alive and Batman dead. But then the argument is, oh, maybe he walked away from being Batman. But how does he do that when he's still alive? Or maybe it's all a dream in Alfred's head. Who knows? This was a really dumb ending. There honestly was just a lot of dumb storytelling as well. A CIA agent allowed hooded thugs on board a CIA plane without even finding out who the additional men are. Why also would then the Gotham City Police send every member of their department, including the SWAT team, into the sewers. Just a lot of dumb things that honestly you wouldn't expect it to be in a Nolan film. From an acting standpoint, I think everyone is very good in this. And again, Michael Caine is the MVP in this movie. He's such a great actor. And frankly, everyone does do a good job. From a production standpoint, this film is like the prior two. It was shot on 35 millimeter and approximately 72 minutes was shot on an IMAX camera. Also finished on film with the visual effects rendered in both 2K and 5 5.6K and similar to the other films, the 4K was scanned from the footage and grade for the HDR. Similarly to The Dark Knight, you get a ratio presentation that shifts from a 2.39 to 1 to a 1.78 to 1 ratio for the IMAX sequences. As with the prior films, the grain is lessened due to the scan, but done to match the clarity of the IMAX footage, which again gives a good amount of detail. And you do continue to get a character from the city, but it's not really one that you'll end up caring about because the movie just is somewhat boring. The HDR again deepens the shadows, enhances again the color greatly, which improves on the Blu-ray image. The audio again is the same with dialogue, phenomenal bass, smooth and natural panning, and fantastic atmospheric. The bass is just as powerful as The Dark Knight, thanks to Hans Zimmer's score. And at the end of the day, this is a finely made movie, but it's definitely the weakest among the three films. I still will say the best film of the three is the first one, though The Dark Knight is probably the most loved. The first two films are pretty great, and I could say that the third is fine, but it's just not up to par. I think my ranking would be Batman Begins, then Dark Knight by a slight distinction, and then followed by The Dark Knight Rises. Now, what did you think of No One's Batman Trilogy? Let me know. Hit me up on social media. Form review is on Facebook, Twitter, and the Gram. I post many things, including trailer reactions, so go check those out. The handle is all the same. It's at the formal review. Feel free to also check out BackseatDirectors.com, where I work with a big team to put out movie reviews and also editorials. Again, that's BackseatDirectors.com. Please also subscribe to the formal review. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're now on Amazon Music, iHeartRadio. 
radio, honestly, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast, we have our content there. Also, I'm always wanting to grow and improve, so please leave a review and what you want to hear because I really do this for you all. I see the numbers and I really appreciate everyone supporting me and talking to me about movies because frankly, that's what it's all about. And for anyone who has supported me on a financial basis, thank you again. And if you want to help support on a financial basis, please go to anchor.fm forward slash the minus sign formal minus sign review and click support this podcast. And honestly, any donation is appreciated. Thank you all again for tuning in. And until next time, wear your mask, wash your hands, stay safe and take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Formal Review. Cheers. And we'll see you next time.